pray. Father, through weak human words, may we come to know your living word, Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Today, in the Christian calendar, is the second Sunday of Epiphany. Epiphany is a season where we celebrate the gospel being brought from the Jews to the Gentiles and the whole world. On Epiphany, the actual feast day of Epiphany, which was January 6th, the gospel reading was about the visit of the wise men to the Christ child, which of course didn't actually happen in the stable, uh, like a lot of the pictures that we have around Christmas time show. It happened probably when Jesus was a few years older and they come bringing him gifts. The wise men from a pagan culture are seeking the Christ child, standing in opposition to King Herod, a Jewish king who tries to murder the Christ child. Last week, we talked about the baptism of Christ and talked about the subsequent sacrament which he instituted that remits sins and makes us regenerate by the work of the Holy Spirit. And the beauty of baptism compared to the old covenant sign of circumcision is that it's genderless and it's not exclusive to a particular culture. Everyone can be baptized because God is drawing all men to himself. Today there's a movement in our readings and in the epiphany season from us to the world. While we spent two weeks meditating and remembering our baptism, now with that reality in view, we begin to look outward. In our readings, we see three important lessons today. The Christian reality, the Christian call, and the Christian invitation. So the Christian reality comes from 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 20. The first letter to the Corinthians, if you weren't here for our Corinthian study that lasted pretty much all of 2016, has two main sections in it. In the first, Paul takes the Corinthians to task because he had been getting bad reports back about their behavior. There was divisions. There was sexual immorality. There was all kinds of other things going on in the church that needed to be addressed. And so as a good bishop, Paul addresses those problems that were occurring. The second half of the book, Paul answers direct questions that the Corinthians have had sent to him previously. He used that, the questions they had sent them as an opportunity to rebuke them for some of the other things they had been doing. So starting in chapter 5, Paul addresses some of the sexual immorality issues going on. There were lots of things happening in the Corinthians church that would make us cringe. There was an incestuous relationship. It appears from this passage that some of the men in the church were getting pagan prostitutes. Things that we are not big fans of, hopefully. Chapter 6, verses 9 to 11, Paul really gets to the point when he says, Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Fornicators, idolaters, revilers, robbers, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And this is what some of you used to be. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So the end result of our baptism is this idea of being transferred into a new state of being. By becoming incarnate, something we celebrated a lot during the Christmas season, Christ takes on our flesh so that 
he might bring us into himself, that we might, as 1 Peter 2.4 says, become partakers of the divine nature. And we know that this happens through baptism. So through baptism, we're brought into the divine life. No longer are we fornicators, idolaters, revilers, and robbers, but rather we are washed, which refers to our baptism. We're justified and we're sanctified. Justification is when God's Christ's righteousness is given to us and God sees us through the merits of Christ and not our own. The result of this is in Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justification is an event that sets off a process called sanctification. The process that begins after we're declared righteous by God where the Holy Spirit conforms us further to the image of Christ by making us holy. While here the context is about issues of sexuality, the underlying principle is that the work of God in our lives through baptism creates an impetus for us to achieve holy living. The impetus is further accentuated by verse 20, where Paul tells us that you were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God in your body. What is the price we were bought with? This is something that Paul addresses in the opening chapter of the book in verse 23 when he says, We proclaim Christ crucified. It's the crucifixion, the central aspect of the gospel. As E.L. Maskell says, the death of Christ on the cross was the recreation of man. Since Christ is the universal man, his payment of our debt and his victory over our foes were in actual fact our recreation, even though the fruits of that recreation can be produced only as by grace we live in him. So the takeaway from our 1 Corinthians reading is that God bought us, brought us into the divine life, and as a result we must cooperate with the Holy Spirit in the process of sanctification so that we can live like Christ. Which leads us to our second component in the readings, which is the Christian call. Virginia read the beautiful passage of 1 Samuel 3, 1 through 20, where Samuel is sleeping or laying down in the sanctuary near the ark, and he keeps hearing the call, and he keeps going to uh, Eli, saying, here I am, you called me, and Eli says, I didn't call you, go back to bed. So finally they realize that maybe Samuel is being called, but it's not by Eli. In the Old Testament, prophets proclaimed God's word to the people in order to get them in line with his covenantal commands. And so Samuel, in this call narrative, which we read today, is being called into that prophetic office. With Samuel, the first prophetic task he's commissioned to preach is the message of judgment being directed towards Eli, the high priest, which is really a tragic one. Eli had allowed his sons to offer um, blasphemous sacrifices to the Lord and was being punished for that. His line was coming to an end and they would no longer be the priestly family. But Samuel's commission points to a larger calling, one where he would become one of the greatest prophets in the history of the nation of Israel. Verse 19 clues us into that calling as it says, The Lord was with Samuel and let none of his words fall to the ground, which is a really interesting turn of phrase in the Hebrew that basically is a metaphorical way of saying none of his prophecies fell to the ground unfulfilled. 
As Samuel proclaimed the word of God to the people who needed to hear it, God was faithful in fulfilling that word. And so obviously as New Testament Christians in a New Testament church, we're not commissioned to preach the same way that Samuel was commissioned. We're not going around talking to high priests, telling them that their lineage is coming to an end. However, we are given a task to proclaim the word of God to people. And while we're often thought of as a royal priesthood, which is a valuable image to use to discuss the church, we also are a prophetic community that speaks the truth to the larger culture. Because God has brought us into the divine life as a church, we must answer his call to proclaim his word by bringing his gospel to the world. So like the Lord was faithful to confirm Samuel's message by not letting his prophecies fall to the ground, so he confirms the church's message when he brings souls into his covenant community through baptism. He's faithful. He's bound himself to the sacrament. He's not bound by the sacrament, but he's bound to the sacrament. And that brings us to our final panel. John 1, 43 through 51, where Philip begins following Jesus and in his zeal finds his friend Nathaniel and says, hey, this is the guy that Moses and the prophets wrote about that we've been expecting. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. To which Nathaniel cynically responds, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And you, you have to understand that uh, Nathaniel's not completely off base with the question. Nazareth was known for not really being a very nice place, sort of the equivalent to some backwater town where nothing really ever happened. Can anything good come out of Rustburg? Can anything good come out of Bedford? <laughs> we might ask today. <laughs> Philip's response to this cynicism is relatively simple. He merely encourages Sam, or Nathaniel to come by saying, come and see. And when Jesus sees Nathanael, he's able to tell him that he saw him sitting under the fig tree before Philip called him, which would have been quite a feat because it would have been basically impossible to see Philip in that location. This action yields a positive response from Nathanael, who goes from being a cynic, who probably reluctantly answers the come and see challenge of Philip, to professing, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. Unfortunately, in modern Western culture, we tend to think of humans as primarily thinking things. And so we reduce our understanding of faith merely to cognitive assent to a set of propositions. There's a whole publishing industry that's based on publishing what we might call apologetics, uh, which aren't necessarily bad, but they cater to this conception of a person as just a brain on a stick. Well, if we just teach people to think like us, then they'll agree with us, and they'll come to our church, and they'll believe what we believe. I'm not saying that faith is irrational, and you know I'm not anti-intellectual, and I don't think that apologetics are bad. It's not an excuse for Christians to be uneducated. It's a call for Christians to be both smart and holy. We have to be versed in apologetics, but we also have to be inviting people to come and see the faith that we live out on a regular basis. 
We need people to demonstrate that the Christian faith is actually the most rational worldview one can embrace, while also showing how fulfilling it can be, how it rightly orders our desires. Very rarely do we argue people into the kingdom. It happens, but it's rare. C.S. Lewis might be a good example of someone who has sort of argued into the kingdom. But if you've ever talked with a non-Christian, there was probably a point in the conversation where you realize, no matter how good of a point I make, or no matter how good the argument I make is, this person doesn't want to hear it. Archbishop Fulton Sheen, who was basically the Catholic Billy Graham of the 20th century, said it well, our faith is the satisfaction of the soul's desires, not the didactic presentation of a syllogism. So when we proclaim the gospel, the Christian invitation, the thing that we invite people to do is not to agree to a checklist of worldview questions that we might ask them. That's important, but that's not sufficient. The invitation we give shouldn't always be made through argumentation, through debating or intellectual rhetoric. Those things are tools and not ends in and of themselves. Rather, we should be inviting them. Come and see. Because like Nathaniel, they won't be disappointed when they do. So to wrap up, Epiphany is a reminder that the gospel is for all people, regardless of their ethnicity, their gender, their social class, or any other plethora of factors. It's a universal offer that makes no exclusion. There is no Jew or Greek, no male or female, no slave or free. The beauty of that message is that it gives us the impetus to be a missional people, to reach the communities in which we find ourselves with the gospel. So as we go about our lives then, our emphasis should be to live out that holiness while making the proclamation of the gospel, inviting people, come and see. So take some time today during our prayers and during the rest of the service and spend some time praying this week about people you know who may not know Christ, but they need him. Ask God to show you ways to bid them. Come and see. Because the gospel's for you. The gospel's for me, and the gospel is for them. So let us pray. Almighty God, whose Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, is the light of the world, grant that your people, illumined by your word and sacraments, may shine with the radiance of Christ's glory, that he may be known, worshipped, and obeyed to the ends of the earth, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, now and forever. Amen.